Welcome to Welcome to Welcome to a Quarter of Opinion. I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Stir. All right. We've had some good performances this week. We've got some teams talking about just blowing it all down and rebuilding it up. Talk about some of the rookies making progress and finish with everyone's favorite segment, Plead Their Case, where you'll ask me a series of questions and I have to plead the case of the individual or situation. But to start, what did you see last week that you like? Any uh, standout performances that you saw? I mean, we're going to get into it in, in higher detail, but obviously Kevin Durant setting um, the season high for points scored, 51 points. That was a monster performance coming in a win um, against a team that many people would say was um, one of the more meaningful wins the Nets have had. One of the critiques about the Nets is that they haven't really beaten too many quality opponents, but um, this one was a good win for them to get, and they did it without James Harden too. So um, I think that that was a really impressive win. However strange what Kevin Durant was doing to Trey Young may have been that game. I don't know if you guys saw the viral videos of Kevin Durant basically looking like he is um, abusing Trey Young um, in a, I guess, almost sexual way. I don't, it was really strange, but Trey Young clearly got pissed about it. But regardless, they ended up getting the win. I think another um, really key performance is Kyle Lowry tying his career high in assists. He had 12 assists by halftime with no turnovers and he did it without Jimmy Butler, without Bantam Adebayo, the two best players on the team. So that was the big performance for him. I think that was very necessary, especially given how much he had been struggling lately. He is a player that's going to have to step up for them in the absence of a lot of their key pieces. And then you have players like LeBron James putting up another 30 point triple double um, showing that as much as the Lakers have been picked on this season for underperforming, you can't really blame him for it. He's definitely doing his part. It's really everyone else on the Lakers that seemingly has to step up. But like I said in earlier podcasts, it seems that LeBron James alone won't be enough to just fix their problems. Yeah, and I think looking at that same game with Lowry, uh, Duncan Robinson finally finding his stroke. He's honestly having a terrible season after signing that monster deal this offseason and hit 509 from three overall 26 points on the game. Every single heat starter was above plus 16 for that game against the bulls, which the bulls are seemingly one of the top three teams in the East. So with the bulls, they had Zach Levine go off for 33 points, but it was not enough because all the other starters, most points scored after that was Lonzo ball with 15. So heat showing out against the bulls thought that was a key matchup for them to show out. Additionally, the Denver Nuggets against the Spurs, we had Nikola Jokic go off for 35 points, 17 rebounds, eight assists, and did so with efficient shooting, four, six from three, 15 of 24 from the field. So above 50% in both and a plus 32 on the game, which is ridiculous overall for Nikola Jokic. So that I think was a just key all around performance for him, exactly what the doctor ordered and exactly what you're seeing from him on a night in, night out. And then the 76ers, Charlotte Hornets, I thought that the Embiid matchup against the Hornets should have been easy for him and seemingly so, 43 points, 15 rebounds, seven assists. But then on the flip side, a gentleman by the name of Kelly Oubre Jr., who was pretty much left for dead over in Golden State, 
He had an abysmal start to the season, could not make a three to save his life. I think he's shooting his best three-point percentage of his career this season. And in this game against the 76ers, scored 35 points with 6 of 13 from three and 13 of 24 from the field. So he's found his rhythm over there in Charlotte. Maybe it's less pressure. Maybe it's that he is more so the guy as compared to being the third or fourth option on the Golden State Warriors. But good to see Kelly Uber getting back to his Phoenix Sundays and really showing out for the Hornets. Yeah, it's interesting that you point out Oubre. He really did seem like a player that was never going to be able to develop a consistent outside jump shot. But I really do think it's really the combination of having less pressure and coming off the bench a lot of times for the Hornets is something that I think has allowed him to settle into a more comfortable space where he can shoot more freely without having all this expectation and all this pressure to be a main piece. So they don't need him to be the first, second, or even third best player in any given night. They just need for him every now and then to give them a lift in case someone else is having a bad game. And I think that he's really filled that role admirably. But um, before we move on, another two teams that we'd be remiss not to talk about would be the Memphis Grizzlies and the Cleveland Cavaliers, which sounds strange to say, but these teams have actually been really overperforming above anyone's expectations. The Grizzlies at 16 and 11, Cavaliers at 16 and 12. They've been two of the better teams in their respective conferences. And what's crazy is, the Grizzlies have been doing this without John ja Morant, their best player. They had a winning streak of five games and then are currently on a two-game winning streak and have won seven of their last eight. And they've done all of this without their best player, John ja Morant. And then you have the Cleveland Cavaliers on the flip side who lose Colin Sexton for the whole year. They're a team that should be rock bottom. I mean, I predicted that they're going to have the bottom fall out, and I still think that they're going to fall out of the top eight. I still don't see it as sustainable, but you got to give them credit. They've been playing great. Darius Garland has really stepped up a lot. And their rookie, honestly, has been excellent. As it turns out, um, Evan Mobley has been one of the best defensive players in the league, not just for a rookie. But I heard a crazy stat that he has the second most contested jump shots per game behind Rudy Gobert. So he really is affecting the game. Um, on the defensive end and putting up, you know, solid scoring, 14 points per game, which is solid on efficient shooting and also has a PER of 16.36, which is above what you would expect for a rookie. So um, a lot of these rookies in this class are starting to find their, their groove a little bit, it seems. Yeah, I agree. But let's talk about a seasoned vet who put up a, like you said, season high last night, Kevin Durant against the Pistons without James Harden scored 51. What do you think of the performance and as we think about the inevitable all-star start or coaches or not coaches, but the top players selected from East conference, it will be the battle of Katie and Steph, which seemingly is the battle for MVP as well. So one, what do you think of his performance, but two, what do you think about that battle? Who's taking lead right now for you? I thought Kevin Durant, what was crazy to see in that 51 point performance is that as, as weird as it sounds to say, it was a quiet 51 points. It's not like the kind of game where it was apparent that the guy had 51 points. He was just ultra efficient with 16 of 31 shooting, 5 of 10 from 3, 14 of 15 from the free throw. And he didn't really seem like he was having any kind of struggle whatsoever to score those points. He seemingly had a very, uh, very simple and easy time getting there. He also pitched in nine assists and seven rebounds, two blocks and a steal, and was a game high or a, um, actually second game high plus 25 on the game. And he passes Stephen Curry 
for the season high in scoring. Stephen Curry previously held it with 50 points. So it seems like he's always one upping Stephen Curry this season. No pun intended. But if it's me, I have to say that Durant is the MVP in my book just because it's, I think it's more impressive what he's doing. He has the Brooklyn Nets sitting at 19 and 8, number one in the Eastern Conference, which a lot of people would say is more competitive this year. And he's doing it without Kyrie Irving. He's had the turmoil and all the drama of the media saying, oh, is Kyrie going to play? Is he going to be traded? Asking questions about this all the time. Then you have James Harden um, admittedly showing up out of shape, not seemingly the same James Harden this season now that he's not getting to the free throw line with the same regularity. You have Blake Griffin, a guy who before was seemingly a valuable rotational piece. He fell off a cliff this season, and now he's out of the rotation completely. So it really does seem like outside of Kevin Durant, they're not really getting anything. They lost Joe Harris. He's gone too for a while. Um, It really has just been the Kevin Durant show, and it doesn't even matter who plays, he's going to get this team in a position to at least be close to winning the game with a lot less to work with than Stephen Curry. And I think that one of the big measurements is if we were to swap them and we were to put Kevin Durant on that Warriors team or Stephen Curry on this Nets team, would they have the same or better success? I think that if you put Curry on this Nets team, they would be a much worse team. And I think that if you put Durant on that Warriors team, they'd be just as good. So um it, for me i have to give it to durant this season yeah i agree with you on a lot of your points it's funny though because you said that the game was quiet and it seemed like nobody really knew that he was about to eclipse 50 points and during his post-game interview somebody asked him did you know you were approaching 50 and he was like hell yeah so he knew very well <laughs> that he was approaching 50 and going to eclipse it and i'm sure that he knows that steph scored 50 because I don't think there's any bad blood truly between those two, but it's competitive sport, competitive nature, and those guys are at the top of their class. But I think that all of the reasons why you listed, all of those narrative reasons are why Kevin Durant is probably more of an MVP candidate or a higher MVP candidate right now as compared to Steph. But based off of pure performances, I still would have to go with none of the above and give it to Nikola Jokic to repeat because his PER is 34, which is higher than everyone in the league. It's eight points higher than Kevin Durant and significantly higher than Stephen Curry, who's sitting at 24.69. And if you look at his stats from last season, he's a tick above on points per game, but his effective shooting percentage is higher as compared to last year, 63% compared to 60%. His three-point attempts have gone up from 3.3 to 4.6, and he's turning the ball over almost equal amounts steals blocks are about the same his rebound numbers are up by uh, 13.5 to 10.8 as compared to last year so Nikola Jokic is shooting the ball more is has a better effective field goal percentage and still has the best PER in the league which we know if you look back at the last 10 seasons I think there was only one that the MVP of that year was outside of the top three in PER so I think Nikola Jokic if the Nuggets were to ascend to the fourth seed I don't think they will But if they were to, he would have a real case as repeating as MVP. But if Kevin Durant maintains his PER, which right now he's in third in that spot and continues to keep the Nets in the top seed position, and again, with all those narrative around him and he stays healthy, then I do think Kevin Durant will win his second MVP. Yeah, I have to agree with you on the Nikola Jokic part too. I mean, he has been someone that has been having an MVP caliber season by all accounts and purposes, but no one's really talking about him because the Nuggets have been just crushed by injuries and he's not getting any credit because his team right now 
is sitting quietly at 13 and 13. So it really is just going to be dependent on can he get help sooner than later. If he, like you said, can get into the top four, you obviously have to give him his consideration. It really has been impressive to see what he's been able to do, especially from the standpoint that this season he has been playing differently because he's had to. Last season, you see that his assists are down this year a little bit from where they were last season because he doesn't have as many pieces to spread the ball around to. He's still distributing well, but you see that he has made it more of an emphasis to attack. So I think that um, it's just been impressive to see the versatility that he can show. He really is a player that when you look at him, you don't think that he could be an elite player based on the way he looks when he moves around. He doesn't really seem like the most athletic guy, but he definitely makes a massive impact on the game. I agree. But moving on from star-studded teams, people, and rosters to a team that's fledgling in the East, the Indiana Pacers owner has come out and said that he wants to tear it all down and rebuild the place. And I think he has the right trade chips, but I want to get your take first on just what that announcement is and where you think some of their uh, stars or individuals can land on these other teams. I think that it's about time that they go with this decision. Apparently the, the general manager had tried to convince the owner of doing a rebuild in the past. And the owner was adamant that they could build a contender around um, DeMontis Sabonis and Miles Turner. And they had a pretty good year last year. They overachieved by many standards. They had a solid season the season before that. It seemed like they were trending in the right direction. This season, you would expect that they were going to take another step and be a little more competitive, getting Karis Levert for a whole season. Um, Brogdon, obviously, a nice player, too. They have nice pieces on paper. I mean, if you were looking at this roster on 2K, four of their starters are probably players that are at least a B-. minus. They're all pretty valuable guys in their own right, but it just seems like they just don't fit well enough together. Maybe they don't have the centerpiece necessary to elevate the respective games of the others. And realistically speaking, the Pacers know they're not going to get a free agent to go sign there. I don't really think anyone wants to play in Indiana like that unless you get drafted by them and they give you massive financial incentive to go with them instead of someone else. They know they're not going to really get another major piece. And with the money committed, they don't have the money to get another major piece anyway. So I think that um, given the way that they've been losing games this season, taking a major step back, it only makes sense to offload these pieces, which obviously they're all valuable pieces in their own right. And it's variety, you know, take your pick. You could, if you're a team on the NBA, no matter what you need, you could probably find it on the Pacers right now. And in Malcolm Brogdon, you have a point guard that will provide plus passing, plus defense. He can space from the perimeter. He's serviceable driving inside. Doesn't really have any gaping holes in his game. Still a young player. You have Miles Turner, only 25 years old. He's one of the top shot blockers in the game. He is shooting nearly 40% from three as a seven-footer. I mean, I feel like that's the kind of center that every team would probably want on their roster right now. You have Karis LeVert, um, a guy with good size that can play on the perimeter, guard at least one through four in today's NBA, provides solid spacing, athleticism, and upside. I mean, you take your pick, and then you have DeMontis Sabonis, um, an established all-star who can provide interior presence to teams that are weak on the inside. So I think that really, no matter who you are in the NBA, you should probably be looking to call the Pacers right now. I completely agree with you. I think if 
Sam Presti was on this team, they'd have 15 first round picks with the roster that they have right now. Not because all of these guys are worth that, but he'd be able to just flip and flip and flip and flip and end up having a roster that's, you know, a hodgepodge together. But with the people that you mentioned, you could probably get a protected first round pick for Malcolm Brogdon, Miles Turner, DeMontis Sabonis at least. And you can, if you take back bad money, probably flip TJ Warren, Justin Holiday, TJ McConnell, and Jeremy Lamb for a, a bad contract and a pick attached to it. So I think that they definitely do have a good roster on paper. It's just these pieces aren't meshing well together. And so I think they do need to tear it down. A team that comes to mind for Malcolm Brogdon and Miles Turner would be the Knicks. I don't think that they have a bona fide big man right now. And their point guard situation is iffy at best with Kemba, Kemba Walker being removed from the rotation. So both defensive oriented, you know, Tibbs loves defense, flip them over there for Kevin Knox, Kemba Martin and Nerman's Noel and a first round pick. And the Knicks team gets significantly better. I think that Miles Turner would also be great for the Heat, put a bona fide big man who can shoot next to Bam, allow Bam to switch to the four, which is where he wants to play. And that would be great for them. And I think, like you said, the list goes on for where these people could play and where their services would be welcomed. Um, and we'll see where they end up going. But I think that the Pacers overall are have a lot of great potential on that roster that just needs to be utilized the right way. And hopefully these players get into situations where that can happen. Yeah, it's honestly really interesting. I don't think that I can remember the last time that there was a fire sale on your entire core where every single player on the core was younger than 30 years old. I mean, Malcolm Brogdon at 29 is the oldest in that group, but everybody else, I mean, they're quietly really young guys like DeMontis Sabonis, Miles Turner, those are guys that are both 25 years old and you can argue that still have their best basketball ahead of them. And Karis Levert at 27 by no means is tapped out in his potential either. And he's shown in spurts during his time with the Nets, his ability to potentially take over games at times, um, showing a lot of upside. But I think that you hit the nail on the head with the Miami Heat. The Miami Heat are a team that have been lacking interior defense, rebounding and spacing from the center position for quite some time now. They haven't really had a serviceable guy that's been able to do that since I can't even remember the last time, but they really do need it for Bam because they're getting killed on the rebounds. Even when Bam is in, when they play these bigger teams like Joel Embiid, Nikola Jokic, these are guys that give Bam a little bit of trouble because he's asked to do so much. He's asked to guard in the perimeter. He's asked to go guard inside. Teams cherry pick that. And I think that allowing Bam more space to work around the, around the rim by having a floor spacer like Miles Turner would be huge. The Miami Heat have to look at this market and evaluate it like you would a real estate market, essentially. Floor spacing big men at this point, there's at least four of them that are available that can at least provide somewhat, at least up to mid-range spacing and can provide interior rebounding and scoring. You can look at Miles Turner, DeMontis Sabonis, Christian Wood, Jonas Valanciunas, all players that are in positions to be traded in the near future that all provide similar things to teams. So if you're the Miami Heat, this is the best situation to grab one of these guys because you know that the market right now has a lot of these guys available. So they're not going to be worth quite as much as maybe other years when these kinds of players are actually hard to come by. So if you're the Miami Heat, you definitely have to take advantage of this window and snag one of those players. 
Yeah. And I don't think for Miles Turner, they would have to give up all of, or, or like any star. Or like, I don't think they'd have to give up Tyler Hero for Miles Turner. I think that they could get away with a first round pick in 2025 with Caleb Martin, uh, Max Struess, um, and, and some of these other young guys to give over to the Pacers. It's like young talent to develop as well as a first round pick and, I they've been trying to trade Miles Turner for the last two seasons, it seems. So I don't think they'd have to give up a lot to get back Miles Turner's services. And I think it'd be a great fit there. Yeah, 100%. Very underrated player with his basketball still, his best basketball still ahead of him. So hopefully he winds up on a good team. I feel for him coming out and saying in an interview post game that he feels like he's not valued as anything more than just a average rotational player in the Pacers organization and that he views himself as someone that is of more value than that. And I would have to agree with him. Hopefully he finds a situation that agrees. Yeah. And he seems like uh, he would fit the culture well there and really on any team as like a hard worker. So we'll see where he ends up, but moving on Cade Cunningham at the beginning of the season, really rough start. I think his first game, he only had two points. He just, Seemed like he needed to get it together, and he's found his rhythm. Over the last five, he's averaging 22 points, five rebounds, five assists. He's got 44% from uh, field goal range, and he's got 49% on three-point field goal percentage on seven attempts per game. So now that he's gotten into his rhythm, is he proving that he's the right choice as the number one pick? And do you think that he's the leader right now for Rookie of the Year? I think for me – he's at least validating that it wasn't a mistake to pick him with the top choice because he's clearly showing the type of upside that if he can produce like this on a consistent basis would be justifiable for the first round pick. So he clearly has been stepping it up. He's scoring on high volume um, and he's not really the most efficient scorer from the field, but his three point percentage has been much higher than I think a lot of people would have expected in his first season. So I think that what he's done is really impressive I like what he's doing. I just feel like to say that he justifies now being the rookie of the year is still a stretch. At the end of the day, it still is just five games, and it's not like they're winning these games either. He maybe is getting these stats, but he's not really impacting winning um, the way that maybe some of these other rookies like Evan Mobley and Scotty Barnes are doing, who are probably putting up similar stats overall in the season have similar upside and are actually making a more positive impact. And you can see that on the efficiency as well. Scotty Barnes, for example, is putting a similar scoring punch up, um, putting up 15.1 points per game. He's also putting up 8.3 rebounds per game. And he's only averaging 3.3 assists, but we know he has great playmaking ability, which he's flashed. So there's still potential throughout the year that that number will continue to go up as his role evolves. But his PER is 16.89. Um, it's top 100 in the NBA, which is pretty solid for a rookie. And he's also playing above average defense. Some would say even elite defense some nights at 6'7", 225 pounds of the NBA ready body right now. Cade Cunningham, on the other hand, still has a long way to go on the defensive end. He may be scoring well, but he's giving up just as many points or more on the other end. So for me, I don't think that what he's doing is enough to make him the rookie of the year up to this point. I still see Scotty Barnes as my favorite. Yeah, I agree with you on the points you made. I see Evan Mobley and Scotty Barnes as right now being the top two candidates. And we'll see 
as long as they can sell, stay healthy and continue to contribute to those teams, I think that they have a great chance to be the one-two punch either way. And Kate Cunningham might just take a little bit longer to develop. And I think Jalen Green will get better as seasons go on. But I don't see number one or two getting rookie of the year this year. Yeah, it's really interesting, too. I mean, at least in most seasons, the one or two pick, at least one of those guys will be in the conversation. But it really does seem like this year it's all about number three and number four. I can't remember the last time that's happened. But um, like I said, it's not like Cade Cunningham is doing bad at this point. He's now brought his average on the season up to about 15 points per game, too. It was just a really talented draft. And, um, I mean, I think that if you're a team that picks in the top four, you got to be happy. If you're the Orlando Magic, sucks that you ended up with Jalen Suggs, who's been the, best, the big disappointment in the top five. But um, if you're Wagner any hasn't of these been bad, teams, so. he hasn't been bad, but I mean, the Suggs pick definitely is probably not, um, not what they had wanted. Not, that one not as bad as bad. Turn out. <laughs> no, that, that one's definitely worse for sure. Yeah. But, but in um, uh, 2016, very good. In 2016, I know Ben Simmons was injured, but talked about Brogdon earlier. He won, and I think he was a 43rd pick in the draft. So doesn't always have to be even in the first round, let alone the top couple picks. I think that uh, in the last couple of seasons, it's definitely been more towards the front with Luca and LaMelo getting it from being the third pick and John Morant being the second pick. But I think that there, there is talent, especially in this draft. I feel this one will be looked back at potentially as similar to 96 or – 2003 as one of those drafts that had a lot of that new wave of young talent that now is stars on all of these different teams. Yep. hundred percent. All right. And on to our last segment, plead their case. You'll ask me a series of questions where I will plead the case of the individual or the situation. Let's do it. All right. Let's start out with the jazz. Utah jazz have quietly won seven in a row and have the second best point differential in the entire league. But again, no one's talking about it because they do this pretty much every year. I mean, every year the Jazz do great in the regular season. Every year they have a great differential. They're beating teams on average by 11.1 points per game. So they're blowing teams out. But why will it be different this year? I think that everyone kind of just writes the Jazz off as a team that are going to do great in the regular season and then find a way to disappoint in the postseason when it matters. Plead a case for why this year it'll finally be different. I think for them, the reason why it'll be different is one, they're a little bit more battle tested. They've been through the playoffs a couple of times and all of those opportunities are learning opportunities for growth. I think Quinn Snyder is one of the best coaches in the NBA. And obviously they have a ton of talent there. I think that Dwayne Wade has had an impact on that team with the front office decisions and who they brought in, bringing in Hassan Whiteside, bringing in Rudy Gay and good rotational players to fill out that second and third unit. And I think also, as we talked about, the West has gotten weaker this season. And so I think that the Jazz will definitely have their hands full with either the Warriors or the Suns, depending on who they would face in the latter rounds. But I think that to start, they should blow out that first team in that first round of the playoffs. And I think that overall, Gobert, Mitchell, they've gotten better. They had a little bit of a, a strife between the two of them, given the COVID protocols and everything that had happened last year. But I think that they've gotten beyond that. I think they're more battle tested. And I think that they'll have an easier run, although they'll be dealing with the Suns and the Warriors, who are arguably the two best teams in the conference or in the NBA. But I think that the Jazz should put up more of a fight this playoff. Yeah, I mean, I, I really don't think that they're going to be more than a second round exit. 
I think, again, it'll just be second round and out for them. But you're right. The West is a lot weaker this year. It's just for me, the Jazz don't seemingly do anything differently. Like they just stick with exactly what they've got. And then they just run it back the next year and they hope that something will change, which to me seems like madness. Like they're bringing back the exact same roster. Like I think pretty much exact from top to bottom. And I think that they're pretty much putting up almost the exact same statistical numbers, all their individual starters as they did last year or pretty close to it. It's almost like they're just taking last season and reproducing it again this year. So in my book, I don't see this year going any differently than last year for them. They're doing the same things. But moving on to our uh, next case, Zion Williamson has now had another setback after finding out that the bone in his surgically repaired foot did not heal correctly. Reports are also surfacing that Zion has skipped rehab workouts and also recently fell asleep during a team film session. He has now missed more games than he has played. Plead Zion's case for why he was still the right choice with the number one pick. So when he's on the court, he's a force. And I think he's a force that people equate him or compare him to LeBron because that's who the star of this league has been for so long. But I feel like when he's on the court, he reminds me more of Shaq. Like you, it doesn't matter if you get in his way, he's going to bully you and he's going to score. But I think like we talked about last episode, the foot is such a terrible place to have an injury, especially for a big man. And especially for someone who is as like thick as he is in terms of just muscle and just overall, he's a big man. And so to have that injury on your foot and to rehab that appropriately while also being able to condition, to lose weight, like you pretty much have to swim and not have any weight bearing on that foot in order to do cardio and eat a very, a very restricted diet. And he's come out and said that like, even when he does, he's still gaining weight. And so I think it's just a catch 22. You want to get better by losing weight, but you can't lose weight because you, you can't do any sort of uh, conditioning or anything that's weight bearing on that foot. So I think that he's still a force to be reckoned with. And I really hope that they just sit him out for the whole season and let him fully recuperate because the Pelicans are not really going to do anything in their current state of their roster. But it, I, I feel bad for the guy. I, I hope that he does make it back because he's an extremely fun talent to watch, very passionate about the game. And I think he's a, just a, a dominant force when he's healthy. Yeah, I mean, the guy did play 61 games in 2020-21 and he did average 27 points per game in literally his second season as a pro on 61% shooting from the field. That's absurd. His free throw percentage wasn't bad either, 69%. Um, it's not like excellent, but it's better than anyone would have probably expected. Clearly the guy's uh, not just an all-star level player, but an all-NBA level player when he's healthy. But that is the big thing when he's healthy. Is he ever going to be healthy? Like, that's one of the big questions. He's not seemingly putting forth the effort that you would expect that you would need to be in the kind of shape that he needs to be in. Like, if you say that he's following the diet and he's doing all the right things and it still doesn't work, that's one thing. But you're literally hearing reports that he's blowing rehab assignments and he's also falling asleep during film room sessions. He's clearly not engaged. So I don't know if it's that living in New Orleans having all that food temptation around him is just too much, or if he just doesn't like the organization or what it is, but he's clearly not engaged right now. 
And although I don't think that he's by any means a bust, at this point, if you look at a guy like John Morant from the same draft class, and you look at the production that Morant has been able to do, I mean, availability is a skill too. I know Morant is hurt right now, but he's generally been a pretty serviceable player up to this point. He's got 149 games played, and he was also averaging um, 24 points per game, 6.8 assists on really good efficiency before he went down. So I think at this point, John Morant is probably proving to be the better number one pick just because he's more available. He's going to make more of an impact on your team because you can rely on him to be there and do what he has to do to show up. Whereas Zion Williamson up to this point hasn't really showed the commitment necessary to be available. So if you're only going to, you know, be an all NBA player for a third of the year, and then you're going to get a foot injury, that's probably not going to win you a championship. So I think that John Moran at this point has shown that he gives you a higher probability of getting you to the promised land based solely alone on the, the odds that he'll be available to be there for you. Yeah. And I think too, that he like Zion's paths, people are going to look at it as one of two ways. You can either become Joel Embiid in terms of injury, where he had the foot injury that kept him out for his first two seasons. People were really questioning the 76ers choosing him. And was it just another way for them to continue tanking when they already had Jaleel Okafor? And Joel Embiid, after two seasons, comes back and he's one of the top 10 best players in the NBA now. And so if Zion does go that route, then people will forget about this period and just go, oh, he wasn't available for those first couple of seasons. Kind of similar to how Steph had his ankle issues at first and people were like, oh, are his ankles made of paper? Is he actually going to be a good player? So that could be the route that he takes. Or he could turn into somebody like Greg Oden that just can never get healthy, can never be available, and then is just a bust that ends up making his way out of the league. So I hope it is the former, but we'll see how that turns out. Another note that I want to talk about is Kevin Durant and Rudy Gay, we've talked about them a little bit, both on this podcast and obviously in the past talked about them coming back from their Achilles injuries. I looked up who their surgeon was and it was the same guy, Jay Martin O'Malley. I feel that these two are the prime example of people who can have Achilles injuries and come back and perform at a higher level, similar to what we, I think, saw with Adrian Peterson with his ACL tear coming back in eight months and then getting... MVP honors rushing for 2000 yards in the NFL. And then back in the day with Tommy John surgery, it being kind of an iffy surgery and then them getting more refined and advanced in their processes. And now pitchers basically get that and come back throwing harder. So Jay Martin O'Malley is going to do wonders for the league. And I think every player who ever suffers an Achilles tear should go to him because clearly he's doing something right with Kevin Durant putting up MVP numbers and Rudy Gay still being a great player after several years of coming back from his ACL or Achilles tear. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see those players obviously were in shape players and were known to not have any conditioning issues prior to their injury. Um, I know that MB did have a little bit of conditioning concerns going into that injury. Um, I guess injury plagued two years that he had, but I don't think that any of those players had as many injury concerns as Zion Williamson, just because of the unique nature of his playing style and build. We have a guy who literally, in Zion Williamson, weighs just as much, if not more, than Joel Embiid, except that he's six foot seven and Joel Embiid is seven foot. That is a lot of pressure to be coming down on 
And especially when you play above the rim that the way that he does, I mean, this guy is really taking off. When he comes down, he is really absorbing some shock on those knees. And I think that for Embiid too, at least for the beginning portion of his draft class, he didn't really have um, anyone else that was making him look like a bust because Andrew Wiggins at number one was underperforming and so was Jabari Parker. Aaron Gordon um, didn't really turn out to be a number four type pick kind of guy. Dante Exum, no one cares. Marcus Smart, I mean, at number six, he's not really what a number six pick you'd hope would be, at least in my eyes. And so you look at the top 13 and you have to go down to Zach Levine to find a truly elite guy that would make you feel bad about picking Embiid. And Zach Levine didn't turn out to become elite until much down the road. So I think there was less pressure when Joel Embiid was hurt with this whole bust situation. But when you have John Morant, um, who is right there in your draft class, a couple picks down, and he's performing the way he is right now, it does kind of make you look at your decision and say, hey, maybe I should have gone with the other guy. So it's, it's tough. But moving on to our last case, the Bulls have 10 players in health and safety protocols. This likely means that some or most may miss their next two games against the Pistons and Raptors, plead their case on why they will still win those games, even though I have no idea how they can even play those games with 10 players missing, but plead their case. This one's tough. I would say the only way I could plead their case is they still have Alex Caruso healthy. So the, the GOAT is still over there playing. But no, they're, they're missing so many of their starters. They just had Elise Johnson be announced as the 10th person who tested positive today. The players, if they're vaccinated, have to test two times with a PCR test in 24 hours with negative results. So that's their only chance of really coming back for the Raptors. But I think this Pistons game is going to be extremely difficult for them. They have eight players that will be available based off of two-way contracts and people that they can call up. So they might play with eight players who most of them probably haven't played many real NBA minutes. And even though the Pistons are one of, if not the worst team in the league, they're still going to be with their full roster against them. And so I, I don't see them winning that game against the Pistons with the Raptors. If Damar or uh, if, if some of these other players are able to come back based off of their negative PCR tests, then maybe they can win those games. But if not, if they're playing eight deep against the Pistons and the Raptors, they're going to get destroyed by both. It'll be a valiant effort for those eight guys, but it's eight guys playing pretty much double the minutes as the other 15 guys across from them. And even for the best teams, that's a tall, tall task. Yeah, like you said, I think it's going to be tough to win any game, no matter who those eight players are, when you're only playing with eight guys. You're definitely playing undermanned, and I think that every game is additive. The more games you have to go playing under those conditions, I think the worse it gets because you basically compound the, the minutes that you're overworking these guys as it is. So it's going to be a tough stretch for the guys that are in. If you're a Bulls fan, um, the only positive that I can really see here is that at least they're not you know, serious injuries. These guys are going to come back. They're going to be healthy. They just need to pass their test, but it is unfortunate. You would hope that by now the league had, um, I guess, a protocol in place. I know they want to be safe, but a different type of protocol that wouldn't affect the outcome of games so much, especially when I think something like 90% or more of the league is vaccinated. So um, it's interesting, but 
if you're the Bulls, you hope that they only really have to deal with this for the next two, three games at most and finally get some reinforcements. But I think it's going to be L's all the way until then. I agree. Well, with that, that's the show. Like us on Instagram, on Twitter. We're on every podcast player. Shout out to the individuals in Ashburn, Virginia and Seattle that have been listening consistently. We appreciate your support as well as all the other listeners of Court of Opinion. With that, I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Stir. Court is adjourned.